0: It is no secret that most of society's critical institutions are suffering from a crisis of trust. One of these is science, which heretofore enjoyed the confidence of the vast majority of the American people. To learn what happened, whether the loss of confidence is deserved, and what can be done about it, I asked the director of Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture to join us for a second time on Humanize. Stephen P. Meyer received his Ph.D. in the philosophy of science from the University of Cambridge, and is a former geophysicist and college professor. He authored the books Signature in the Cell, which was named a book of the year for 2009 by the Times of London, the New York Times bestseller Darwin's Doubt, and, most recently, The Return of the God Hypothesis. Meyer has also published editorials in national newspapers such as the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the National Post of Canada, the Daily Telegraph of London, and the Los Angeles Times. He has appeared on national television and radio programs such as NBC Nightly News, ABC Nightly News, CBS Sunday Morning, Nightline, Fox News Live, Good Morning America, and was recently heard by millions of viewers in an extended interview on the Joe Rogan podcast. He has also been featured in two New York Times front-page stories and has garnered attention in other top national media. In 2008, he appeared with Ben Stein in the theatrically released documentary Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. He has also been featured prominently in the science documentaries Icons of Evolution, The Case for a Creator, and and Darwin's Dilemma, which aired on PBS and which Meyer co-wrote with producer Ladd Allen. He also may be the most intelligent person I know. Steve, welcome back to Humanize.
1: Well, that's a hard, hard introduction to follow, but thank you, Wesley. It's good to be with you.
0: You know, you spent your entire education and career in the sciences. Why did you choose that field of work?
1: Well, I've always been interested in um, the natural world. When I was a little kid, I had the typical four-year-old fascination with dinosaurs. My my sister loves to tell the story of me burying chicken bones and then going and uh, uh, digging them up again just to pretend that I was a paleontologist. (laughs) But uh, I've also been very interested in the questions that are at the intersection between science and philosophy which I think explains uh, my eventual choice to go into the field of philosophy of science from, uh, from physics and geophysics, where I started.
0: Uh, you did major in the philosophy of science. What is the philosophy of science? Because one doesn't necessarily think about science and philosophy being together. And what are its major tenets?
1: Well, the philosophy of science addresses questions that are, at, in a sense, at the edge of scientific investigation. Questions about the nature of science itself, questions about the methods that scientists use, uh, questions about the metaphysical implications of scientific theories, and those have been uh, a particular interest of mine, looking at questions about the origin of the universe and the origin of life, which have a strong scientific dimension, but in, in each case raise fundamental questions about uh, what philosophers sometimes call the prime reality, the thing from which everything else came. So. Um, in the you you i will be no doubt aware that um, in the history of science science was initially called natural philosophy it wasn't until the 1840s or 50s when w- william Huell coined the term scientist so right from the beginning scientists uh, the people we call scientists today like kepler and boyle and newton thought that they were philosophizing about how nature works so philosophy is good thinking and uh, and and science is the study of the natural world, so it's it's really quite natural to combine the two, do good thinking about the natural world.
0: Well, uh, before we get into the uh, to the nitty gritty and the heart of the matter, describe the work of the Center for Science and Culture and why did you help found it?
1: Well, we uh, the the center was founded in 1996. Uh, the center has been was founded with the express idea of challenging one particular metaphysical interpretation that has drawn support from science or you might say is the the philosophical framework in in which much of modern science has been done and that philosophical framework is sometimes called materialism or or naturalism the idea that the the natural world of matter and energy are all that exists and that the universe therefore is eternal and self-existent and self-organizing and self-creating. And so this is a kind of uh, worldview uh, um, extension of much current scientific thinking. It's not actually required by the scientific thinking. In fact, we've argued just the opposite. But since the late 19th century, the, the, the theistic view that gave rise to modern science in the period of the scientific revolution in the 16th and 17th century has been supplanted by a more materialistic perspective. You had, um, in the late 19th century, you had uh, 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 Darwin's theory of the origin of new forms of life. You had Huxley's ideas about the origin of the first life. Uh, Going back further, Laplace attempted to explain the origin of the solar system by purely undirected physical forces. So you had this kind of seamless origin story that could be told by the late 19th century where everything from the origin of the solar system to the origin of the first life to the origin of new forms of life to origin of of even human beings could be told as the result of slow gradual undirected processes and the combination of those theories ended up generating a kind of comprehensive worldview that suggested that the universe is eternal, self-existent, self-creating, and self-organizing. Then you had other extensions of that into the into social sciences. Uh, Freud uh, <coughs> developed a psychology that was essentially materialistic and attempted to, to explain what to do about the human condition, what to do about our guilt. And you had, with Marx, a, a materialist utopian vision of the future. So if you just think of those three great materialist figures of the late 19th century, early 20th. Darwin tells us where we're, we're going. Freud, uh, sorry, Dar- Darwin tells us where we came from. Marx tells us where we're going. Freud tells us what to do about our guilt and the human condition. And so between the three and other r- related uh, thinkers, uh, we end up with a kind of comprehensive worldview known as scientific materialism that answers the, the basic questions that Judeo-Christian religion had always answered. And so, scientific materialism or scientific naturalism supplants uh, uh, Judeo-Christian theism as the dominant worldview, and it, it, among elite intellectuals, and it's had a huge impact on our our culture since then. If we look at the law schools, the media, the courts, the science laboratories, the universities, this worldview is sort of the default way of thinking, and um, and therefore. Um, but yet, and it claims to be supported by science, and that's what we wanted to challenge. We don't think it is supported by science. Uh, If anything, science is actually, again, supporting the theistic perspective that gave rise to it in the first place.
0: This is very interesting. It sounds to me like you're saying that uh, (laughs) for, would it be safe to say, ideological reasons, that science or the, the pursuit of science took out certain aspects of what a full pursuit of truth might look like. So we can't, science can't look at anything that doesn't have a natural explanation in the sense of we understand natural. And so it's really kind of, uh, you might say corralled itself into a partial worldview. Would that be accurate?
1: That's a very good way of, uh, well, it's a worldview, but it's a worldview that excludes by definition of science by the, the contemporary definition of science, consideration of anything would challenge that worldview. So in the period of, of Kepler, Boyle, Newton, uh, Huygens, you know, all the great early scientists, you had this, um, th- they, were, they were developing science in a, in a theistic and indeed, um, for many of them, overtly Christian or Judeo-Christian milieu and they were, they, science arose for explicitly um, theistic reasons. One of the key ideas of, uh, that gave rise to modern science was the idea of intelligibility, that nature is uh, intelligible, it can be understood because it's the product of a rational mind, namely God the creator, and because that same God has endowed us with rationality, we can understand the rationality, the order, the design that he's placed into nature. And that gave people confidence that the systematic study of nature would would reveal secrets, would reveal insights and patterns and order that could be described eventually mathematically. And so there was a tight correlation between, or a tight connection between, the theological ideas that were in the minds of the early founders of science and the way they the, the, the confidence they had in doing science, their reasons for pursuing it, and and the way they ended up doing it, um, and. Uh, But by the late 19th century, we got this shift. And the shift came about because of specific theories that were developed that allowed scientists to portray the universe in a different way as the consequence of undirected, unguided material processes only. But that shift also ended up codifying an approach to the scientific method. And you see this already in an incipient or a a, a nascent form in, um, in The Origin of Species. There's a particular phenomenon that Darwin is interested in, and it's called homology, that you have similar bone structures in very different animals. And he attributes that to the, pos- to the idea that the animals had a common ancestry. Well, there was a, a well-established alternative explanation for that similarity among the biologists who were his contemporaries and who had been working in the, uh, in the, in the preceding generations, and that was the idea of a common design plan. Now, it happens that both common design and common descent can explain that similarity equally well, but Darwin in the origin, and Darwin acknowledged this alternative explanation in the origin, but he said, quote, but that's not a scientific explanation. So he defined out of existence or out of relevance or out of consideration, out of the realm of consideration, an alternative explanation that involved the action of a
0: designing mind.
1: And that became, that that move Became codified, and by the end of the 19th century, coming what, what into the
0: what do you point, mean it became codified?
1: Well, there's a, there's actually a, a principle that scientists uh, a nor a, a principle of, a, a normative principle of method or a principle of method that scientists regard as normative that they call methodological naturalism, and that's the idea that if you're going to be a scientist, you must explain all phenomena, all events by reference to strictly materialistic or naturalistic processes, and you may not consider creative intelligence as part of the explanation for how things came to be or why they, they work the way they do. And this was a, 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 a dramatic departure from the thinking of the early scientists. In uh, Newton's General, uh, General scholium, which was the epilogue to the Principia, he made very explicit design arguments. Uh, he famously said, speaking of the planetary bodies, he said, th- this um, this um, most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. And so he made an, an argument that was a, a, essentially a fine-tuning argument um in the epilogue to the Principia, arguably the greatest work of physics ever written. Uh, In the optics, he made design arguments about the eye. Robert Boyle made design arguments. So this was part of uh, the inspiration for science. And also, it flowed out of scientific investigation until the late 19th century, things began to shift. So you're saying
0: that that some of the original uh, discoveries wouldn't would not be permitted under the current uh, uh, reign of scientific materialism?
1: Exactly. And moreover, some of the more recent discoveries have uh, uh, have implications that cannot be considered under this same regime, if you will, of methodological naturalism viewing. Um, and, and you can you can you there's a lot to say about this, but uh, in my work in the philosophy of science, Uh, I discovered that a, a very powerful method of scientific reasoning has a name. It's called inference to the best explanation. And it's the idea that if you have a body of facts, you want to consider all the possible explanations and then evaluate them based on our knowledge of cause and effect to see which best explains the phenomenon in question. And what's happening in the debate about biological and cosmological, well, especially biological origins, is that you have a range of possible explanations, a number of different types of evolutionary uh, theories uh, invoking different materialistic mechanisms. But you also have distinctive indicators of intelligence in life, such as the digital code that's present in the DNA. And people will say, well, we can't consider intelligent design as an explanation. And so rather than infer to the best explanation among all the possibilities, we are now in a period of science where scientists want to restrict the inferences that are allowable, and so you can only infer to the best explanation among an artificially limited set of options.
0: Why why do they want to so... if, if the point of science is to find the truth, why restrict it in any way?
1: Well, that's our question to them. Uh, we're, we're challenging not only. We're, we're, in my work, I've developed positive arguments for intelligent design as the best explanation for, for say, for say the digital code in DNA, or the complex information storage, transmission, and processing system that you find in cells, or the circuitry that's at work in in. Uh, guiding animal development, or the miniature machines that Michael Behe has made famous in his work, uh, Darwin's Black Box. There are many phenomena in bio- in, bio- in living systems that display attributes or features, which in any other realm of experience would make us immediately aware of a designing agent behind them, of an engineer of some kind. But that's a forbidden inference in the minds of many scientists. And so we've been challenging, we've not only been making the argument that design better explains some of these phenomena, but also that we've been challenging this artificial rule of method that restricts the intellectual freedom of the scientist to consider that hypothesis. And on exactly the grounds you indicate, isn't the real point of science, isn't the ultimate goal of science to find the truth, irrespective of our philosophical predilections that we bring to the inquiry. Um, and and so we want we don't want um, otherwise we, we'll have a, a, an historical biology where we're looking at natural history trying to figure out what happened and we're going to say well we can't consider the idea that a mind played a role um, you've got two basic possibilities and they go back to the ancient Greeks is, is life the result of unguided undirected material processes or did it arise by the as the result of an intelligence playing a role in configuring matter in some way. If you decide from the outset that one of those two answers cannot be considered, then you're going to have a, a less than fully rational form of inquiry as you address that question because you're are,
0: are you guilty of the same exclusion where you you want to pursue um, a hypothesis, let's say, that uh, says it is directed in some fashion? Uh, to the exclusion of a nat- undirected, natural. Do you do you engage in kind of the same prejudice up from the other end?
1: Well, if you read my books, you'd say no, because I end up. Um, th- they have a. Th- th- they're long and ponderous in some ways because <laughs> I address all comers I, and look at all the different explanations that are that are on the table. I use the method of inference to the best explanation to make my case for intelligent design, which means, for example, in my book on the origin of life, I had to address theories, and there were several that attempt to explain the origin of life as a result of natural laws or what are called self organizational processes. I had to address other naturalistic theories that rely heavily on chance or uh, a random processes I had to address other theories that combine the two the law like and the and the, and the random together and so um, so I, we've very self-consciously attempted to to evaluate in making our case all the re- all the relevant hypotheses and moreover we acknowledge that there are real natural processes that have causal powers uh, we think for example if we ID proponents think that natural selection is a real process that can do real things. It has certain generative powers, but not others. And so, what? The, so uh, we like to say we have more we have more tricks in our in our explanatory toolbox. If the if the data warrants an inference to intelligence, we're willing to make it. If it doesn't, if it warrants an inference to the if, effect of natural processes, will make that inference. And that's the way science used to be pursued.
0: Well, that's so, how it should be pursued. Uh,
1: exa- well, we think so. And you find this kind of exclusionary logic in other controversial subjects. It may not be a philosophical reason for excluding a, a, a given hypothesis. It may be a political one, or it may be a, a personal prejudicial one. But um, I, I think the scientific method, as well, there, first of all, there are many scientific methods, but good method requires an openness to all relevant hypotheses and not closing down inquiry and, uh, and excluding some possible explanations before you've even evaluated the evidence.
0: So science, the scientific method, is the means by which uh, the natural world is explored. Just real quickly, because this isn't a course in science.
1: Yeah, sure, uh,
0: sure. um what are some of the, the tools that scientists use to do these investigations?
1: Well, there's a a textbook version of the scientific method that is a nice approximation of what many scientists do. But one of the things that I explained in uh, Signature in the Cell is that there are many different scientific methods depending on the nature of the thing being studied. There are some scientists scientists, scientists who use the standard method that you learn in the textbooks. They generate a hypothesis, they uh, set up a controlled laboratory experiment, they then run the experiment, and they see if their hypothesis, uh, the hypothesis that that they formulated matches what actually happens under those controlled laboratory experiments. So they make a prediction and see if the prediction comes true. But there are also historical scientific Questions: What caused life to arise? How did the trilobites emerge in the Cambrian period? Um, there, uh, what, what was? How did the universe begin? Uh, what were the ancestors of human beings like? Uh, all any number of archaeological, anthropological, cosmological, biological questions that are essentially historical in nature. And it turns out that prediction plays much less of a role in that sort of inquiry, and instead. Uh, typically, historical theories are evaluated by comparing their explanatory uh, power with respect to facts we already have. We don't go and run experiments; we gather data, observe things, and then try to explain it after the fact. There are also scientific. Um, there's also uh, scientific fields that are involved with classification. They don't really make predictions. They're, they make careful observations, and they do a lot of comparing and contrasting. And on and on it goes. So there are, we have this idea that there is one scientific method, and that's been used somewhat um, mischievously, the, the stereotyped view of science, to exclude questions that we might not want to uh, consider or answers that we might not want to consider. So oftentimes, um, the theory of intelligent design is said to not qualify as a scientific theory because it doesn't use the same method that you use in in the be- at the bench, in the laboratory, the same method of science that is used there. But it does use the exact same method that Charles Darwin used in developing his case in The Origin of Species. In fact, I modeled my case for intelligent design and signature in the cell and Darwin's doubt on the method of reasoning that I studied in my PhD years of historical scientific reasoning that Darwin used. So sometimes um, not recognizing the diversity of methods that scientists use can be used uh, in a, uh, pejoratively to try to stigmatize a, a, an idea you don't like. And that sometimes they, they, this is sometimes called the demarcation problem. You say you define science in a very rigid narrow way and then you say, well, our opponents don't use that particular method of reasoning, therefore they're not scientific. but typically there's double standards applied in that type of reasoning.
0: This this is beginning, and and now we're moving into the loss of trust in science. Uh, be, and I think that's a natural segue, because this is beginning to look not so much uh, in in the sense you just described as a search for truth, but as a search for power.
1: It can be that's the danger, um, and and the and the reason it's a danger is that science, like anything else, is a human enterprise. Sure, and and human beings can. Um, can apply standards selectively to favor one idea over another. They can exclude ideas they don't like on grounds that are, 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 are specious um, and so on. So just as the founders uh, established checks and balances in our system, we need some checks and balances and uh, often one of the best is competition. That, uh, and one of the problems with big science funded by big government is that typically uh, the, 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 the faction that gains uh, traction or power will ensure that all the research funding goes to one particular perspective as opposed to another, and then wh- whoever gets the grant in that case is likely going to be able to d- decide the theory, decide what's true. And so the best the best
0: and and they try to stifle people who might question that, correct? We've
1: seen this with the climate change debate and 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 many other things.
0: But Uh, that isn't our debate
1: about Darwinism. I mean you can't get funding from normal normal uh, you know NSF or NIH type federal science funding agencies to investigate the evidence of design in nature, even though understanding the design of living organisms can lead to discoveries that have medical benefit or deeper understanding of biology um, so but but we've seen it in many there are many politicized scientific debates where where one faction will gain uh, a monopoly access to the funding sources and then it becomes very difficult for a, a different theoretical perspective to compete on equal footing and 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 that's that's a kind of I think does a disservice to science. There's a wonderful Italian.
0: Philosopher I would say it's anti-science. It's anti-science because well, it, it science is well supposed be. to have that dynamic exchange, isn't it?
1: Wonderful Italian um, philosopher of science, Marcello Pera. He's not Irish. There's a, a pause between <laughs> the O and the Para. Um, and and he argues that that there must be a rhetorical dimension to science. That science advances as scientists argue about how to interpret the evidence. And you can see how that dovetails with my interest in inference to the best explanation as a as a very effective and powerful scientific method, there's an inherent in the idea of best a competition. There's a competition to interpret the evidence in the best way possible, consistent with with our knowledge of our background knowledge about how the world works, consistent with our knowledge of cause and effect, consistent with our best observations of the phenomena, etc. And and so science has historically advanced through controversy. Uh, when Newton established the, his theory of universal gravity, universal gravitation, he did so by vanquishing in the intellectual sense, a prior view of gravity that was formulated by people called the mechanical philosophers. So the first line of his book was, uh, the theory of vortices is beset by problems on many sides. So that was the preceding theory. So he starts out making an argument against a previous way of looking at things. Darwin in the Origin of Species characterized his book as one long argument for the idea of descent with modification by natural selection. So we have this stereotype view of scientists who are in the lab in white coats. They make some observations and the theory just jumps off the page uh, as a fait accompli and we now... There's no need for any further discussion or argument. It's self-evidently obvious obvious to anyone who's made the observations. What, what, how to interpret the observations? That's not the way it works. Um, And good science will allow competing arguments to uh, um, participate. They're necessary to the evaluation process. That gets us closer and closer to the truth over time. If you have a monopoly, just as in the free market, if you have a monopoly of one theoretical perspective that has gained dominance not by an idea ideolo- not by theoretical competition but because of access to power or money, then then that's, that that ends up corrupting the process and it means that the the dominant theory may not be the best theory um, in fact
0: yeah uh, I participated in the embryonic stem cell debate to a very large extent uh, during uh, the George W. Bush administration. and And I saw what you're you're talking about play out very vividly because the reason uh, one of the reasons anyway, that the science establishment was so angry at Bush was because he limited, not even to a great degree, but funding for embryonic stem cell research, and he said, I also want to have an opening for what he considered ethical, appro- more ethical approaches, because science and ethics are different things, uh, uh, which actually led to a Nobel Peace Prize—not not a Nobel Peace Prize, but a Nobel Prize for uh, a scientist named Yamanaka— who developed uh, the ability to create pluripotent stem cells from normal skin cells. Normal and why did he cells. do that? Why did yeah. he do that? He did that because he said, I was in a lab, I looked at an embryo, and it made me think of my daughters. And I want to find a way to do this in a way that is that is what he considered ethical. And I always said during that debate, that the, ste- the stem cell debate isn't a science debate. We No one's disputing what pluripotent stem cells are. That's what science can tell us. It's an ethics debate, whether it is appropriate and ethical and moral to destroy embryos in the pursuit of these uh, cells. And yet, the people who wanted that funding uh, limitation destroyed wielded an epithet called anti-science. Yeah, You're course. anti-science. Right, right. And it seems to me that that is the, at least in my lifetime, the beginning of this division uh, and and almost uh, ideological or political attempt to uh, to exclude certain people from the scientific enterprise, or at least respectability in science.
1: Well, and you know much more about this than I do, Wesley, but wasn't it also the case that there was a scientific dimension to this in determining whether or not somatic cells as opposed, opposed to embryonic cells could uh, be used to develop
0: Stem cells. Yeah, well, the, that well, uh, the induced pluripotent stem cell is using the somatic cells, right, right, which is like normal skin cells. And there was a de- there was a debate about whether adult stem cells could uh, provide these treatments and em- uh, better than embryonic. So there was there was that scientific was a scientific dimension. dimension, dimension. Yeah. Which could well by, the way by, by the, the way, by the way, guess what? Reason. Guess what? There's not one single. FDA-approved embryonic stem cell treatment today, 20 years after that debate, awesome. and adult stem cells are b- being used in medical treatments, and uh, induced pluripotent stem cells are being used in excellent research. So the people who were supposedly, quote, anti-science actually had the, had, were more right than the, the scientists <clears throat> saying that it has to be embryonic, and they tried to exclude that side from the right. discussion.
1: That's that's the kind of dynamic that we hope will um, that we mean to challenge. It's, it, this is not good for science. You, we've seen this in the climate change debate. We saw it in the debate over the public health response to COVID. We've seen it in our debate about Darwinism. I'm told that that the debate about the ESG regulations uh, are uh, by people challenging some of the attempts to prevent people from using fertilizers and things like this are also that that uh, the, the the people on the left in the ESG debate are um, invoking consensus science to, to 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 shut down that debate so I think and then in medicine uh, I, I have a number of, of good friends and colleagues who are med school professors and there are so many debates in medicine about about um the the facts of the matter and what treatments follow from them. And if you shut down those debates, you'll you'll prevent the advance of of science and the the ethical use of science or the cultural or or economic use of science, the technological development of it.
0: Well, isn't the the concept of science is what the consensus says it is? Isn't that an anti-science approach?
1: Well, I think so. I always tell people that that if somebody is appealing to a consensus to settle an argument in science, that's a sure sign that there isn't a consensus. When there really (laughs) is a consensus, nobody invokes it. You don't have to say, well, there's a consensus that the formula for water is H2O. No, there really is a consensus around that in chemistry. So nobody has to to invoke consensus. You only invoke consensus when you're trying to shut somebody else up who has a dissenting voice. And so... the, the use of that of that tactic is almost a sure sign that there is there is a genuine controversy afoot w- among scientists.
0: It's interesting. Uh, people some si- sometimes will say to me, "Well, why did people trust science when the SOC vaccine for polio came out, and yet they don't trust science now for the COVID vaccines?" And and my reply has always been, "Well." Uh, Jonas Salk wasn't trying to change the culture. Jonas Salk was simply trying to cure polio, and and he would not have been offended by uh, a different approach to that uh, great task that was actually accomplished by he and Sa- uh, Sabin. Whereas today, when people like uh, Jay Bhattacharya uh, wrote the Great uh, Barrington Declaration, uh, who who by the way, full disclosure, is a friend of mine and was attacked for having a different perspective than uh, Francis Collins did and Anthony Fauci. There's a huge difference in the approach to somebody who might have a a heterodox hypothesis.
1: Well, he was called a fringe epidemiologist by Collins and and Fauci, neither of whom are actually epidemiologists. Yes. And and Jay is. Um, And he also, by the way, was not questioning the use of vaccines, of the vaccine for all people, but he had done some careful analysis of the um, the efficacy of the vaccine and risk-benefit calculations by age cohorts. So he was concerned about it being used for young men under 20, but very much an advocate of it for people over 50. And then case-by-case analysis in between, as I recall. So that type of, that, that's a kind of um, nuanced form of scientific Analysis that should have been part of the discussion. I have yeah. no idea whether he was right or his opponents were right, but I, as a philosopher of science, that di- that debate should have a, a, uh, proceeded openly in the public sphere without him being uh, stigmatized with with epithets and pejoratives, and. Um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons that the public lost some confidence in the public health response to, to, to COVID because very prominent people, Jay Bhattacharya, Martin Koldorf, uh, their colleague from Oxford, the Professor Gupta, um, you know, these were very prominent people who were behind the the Great Barrington Declaration. And they weren't saying that COVID wasn't a real thing. They had a different idea about how to respond to it. They wanted to focus on what protection public of people po- yeah, who they- were most vulnerable as opposed to a blanket response shutting down the whole of the economy.
0: Right. So before the, was it, was, it was before the vaccines. Debate. Yeah, it was before the vaccines came out. Yeah. and And it was, you know, the idea is, well, you know what? Shutting down everything is going to cause more harm than good. That should have been part of the public discussion instead of being stifled.
1: Right. And and having one side say, we represent the science and the other, right. and then calling the other side fringe. Right. That's, that kind of tactic is anti-intellectual. It's
0: anti-scientific. And it leads to distrust because you're basically excluding people who might think, well, you know, that makes sense to me. And then they're being told, well, you're an idiot. Uh, it's anti-science. And, uh, and, and, and it becomes very acutely political in a very politicized age, and science should actually try to avoid that.
1: Well, and let's not forget the people who were expressing these dissenting opinions were highly qualified. Yes, Uh, Dr. Bhattacharya is a med school professor at Stanford. He did the first studies on the infection fatality rate for COVID, and the numbers that he was uh got from his study were showing that it was about an order of magnitude or more or less than the the uh initial reported infection fatality rate which was the basis for all the the draconian lockdowns um but he was at stanford his his colleague koldorf was at harvard is at harvard um professor gupta was at oxford and there was another um you know you had Mar- marty mccari who was at johns hopkins i mean a number of the people that were speaking out challenging the Supposed consensus response were very prestigious institutions, but they were getting they were getting tarred with these anti-science kind of labels, and that did the debate and 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 the culture no no good service. I mean that was a disservice
0: and it did and it did a, a disservice to science because it seems to me that uh, the Fauci Collins WHO approach was science as consensus while the Jay Bhattacharya Great Barrington Declaration and other approaches with science as open inquiry. Would you think that would be an exact uh, accurate?
1: I love that exact distinction you're making because it applies to many of these controversies that make it into the public arena. you, the, the, we have two different concepts of science in, in play today. Science as consensus, science as settled, science as a, the consensus view of uh, a particular, uh, pr- a particularly privileged group of elites versus science as open inquiry, as a dynamic enterprise that is openly and on, in an ongoing way evaluating the best evidence that we have. That, that version of science is what we need to be supporting. Science as consensus or as settled or as uh, um, elite opinion is, is, I think, dangerous because it can lead us far astray from the truth and it does absolutely undermine public trust in the idea of science
0: Which and, and the enterprise of science. And that's really dangerous because science is an urgent uh, aspect of modern life. We need science, we need exploration. We need,
1: we need it and we need trust in it because there's an opposite extreme as well. There's not just the the, consi- the prematurely settled consensus that's enforced by elites, but there's also a lot of wacky stuff out there where quality control is needed, and mm-hmm. you have people, um, you know, posting all kinds of things on the internet uh, about um, modifying your bodies or ways of of um, treating various conditions and a lot of this stuff it doesn't get vetted it's not based on any kind of, of rigorous study um, you'll notice I I am I don't all I don't think peer review is always the best way of doing quality control because if the peer group is controlled by an ideological faction then that means that can freeze ideas out but rigorous you uh, studies where you're isolating variables, all of those kinds of good methods that have been developed in science need to be done. And you need to have scientists argue about whether the studies were valid or invalid or whether the evidence is good, whether it can be replicated, all those sorts of things to do quality control. And so we've got a lot of, we have a lot of junk science out there as well as uh, consensus science where the consensus may not be well grounded. So you may have very Prestigious people supporting a consensus view that's not well grounded. You may have a lot of people, other people with no qualifications in science, is all at all pushing a lot of wacky stuff, and that's an, that's that's another consequence of the loss of trust in science. People don't know who to trust, so we've got to get back to people that are properly trained, operating in an open environment where they can really argue things out, and that and where dissenting opinions are welcome and evaluated. And so it's not easy, but we've got the, a, a, a sine qua non of all this, a necessary condition of good science is the o- openness of inquiry. We've got to get back to that.
0: And I've heard uh, people who, who, let's say, support the consensus science or what the establishment says should be um, promoted, basically saying, well, people won't understand this dynamic argumentation that you're talking about and it will confuse people. But I I, it seems to me you're correct that by stifling that, you open the door to pure crackery and and that just leads to a cacophony of voices and and people don't know who to believe.
1: People just shut down then. They won't do you know, um, there there are some cost benefit analyses that needed to be done on the COVID vaccine, especially apparently for younger athletic men. Uh, but people shutting down those legitimate concerns about the vaccine has led to a lot of people saying, I'm not doing any vaccines at all. I'm just anti-vaxxing. You know, I'm completely against vaccines altogether. Well, um, you know, I have an uncle who was a polio victim as a child, and, and the polio vaccine has been a great benefit to the human race. So, so you have this, this um, the, the loss of trust, I think, in science is a huge concern and it's really important to find the middle of the fairway and so we keep the debate open because i keep think keeping the debate open especially to you know to to uh, well well qualified voices across the spectrum of opinion means that the the public is going to have more trust in in the outcomes of those debates once they happen
0: is part of the problem that uh, science has almost become uh, a form of entertainment in the media, that um, the idea that uh, you know who's going to uh, be the one who who uh, like uh, uh, what's his name the science guy who's actually an engineer
1: oh Bill Bill Nye the Bill science Bill Nye guy. the science guy yeah. is actually
0: an engineer yeah. and and you know these uh, um, uh, Carl Sagan was another example although I think he was certainly uh, more responsible uh, but that the idea that uh, science has become uh, you know, celebrity science and whether you make the, the big contracts and all of that stuff as opposed to uh, the, the, it's a slow process of finding the facts and the truth.
1: Well, and there's often a great disparity between the presentation of the consensus view to the public and what's actually going on in peer-reviewed technical journals. For example, in the debate about Darwinian evolution, uh, we have uh, well. I'll give you a very specific example. In 2009, I sp- uh, I presented to the Texas State Board of Education about a, um, in support of a, a provision they were considering to allow s- teachers to teach the strengths and weaknesses of competing scientific theories, including controversial theories such as Darwinian evolution and and anthropogenic global warming, and they named some others. In the I I presented. To the board explained that there was a genuine controversy going on in science about the, for example, creative power of the natural selection random mutation mechanism that's invoked by evolutionary biologists. Uh, My opposite number at that hearing, a woman named Eugenie Scott for the National Center for Science Education, was quoted in the Dallas Morning News before her testimony as saying that this provision in the Texas State Board of Education Standards was um, w- w- should be opposed. It was not necessary because she said there um, be- be- because there is, are no um, there there are no <laughs> scientific challenges to Darwinism. Now you go to the scientific literature and you find that that you have, for example, in 2016, a major conference at the Royal Society convened by a group of third way evolutionists who are calling for a new theory of evolution because they think that the standard neo-Darwinian theory that we all learn in the textbooks doesn't work. And that natural selection and random mutation, that the main driver of the evolutionary process, um, has very limited creative power. It does a nice job of explaining small-scale variations like finch beaks getting a little bigger or smaller, but it doesn't explain where birds or moths or animals come from in the first place. And so in, in my book, Darwin's Doubt, I just I described this dynamic and I argued that we've never actually seen a, a theory where there is such a great disparity between how it's being presented to the public and what's going on in the, and what's being discussed in the relevant peer-reviewed literature. Uh, in, in, as far back as 1980, Stephen Jay Gould said that neo-Darwinism neo-Darwin, was effectively dead except as textbook orthodoxy. We're 40 some odd years on from that. That textbook orthodoxy still persists in the media, in the textbooks, in statements by science organizations. But when you look at the, what's going on in the peer-reviewed literature, you have people propose—it's a, it's a wild, wild west. I, I described eight new theories of evolution in my book, Darwin's Doubt, that have been proposed post-neo-Darwinian. We have Simon Conway Morris, the great paleontologist from, from Cambridge, says, we're in a post-Darwinian era. But we, we ha- there's not a not a whisper of that in textbooks. So you can get this big disparity. The celebrity scientists I call them Darwin's public defenders: uh, Richard Dawkins, Jerry Coyne, Eugenie Scott until her retirement, Ken Miller. These folks are presenting one image of Darwinian evolution to the public that's star- starkly at odds with what you're finding in the technical. Biological literature, even in the subdiscipline of evolutionary biology, where the neo-Darwinian view is being being uh, being challenged,
0: which and raises that,
1: the, that dynamic takes place in other fields as well.
0: Which raises the issue of peer review, uh, which you mentioned briefly. Uh, ideally, uh, how is peer review supposed to further science, and what has gone wrong with peer review, if anything?
1: Peer review is really. Um, a, an institution that was only established after World War II, as a way of uh, in, in introducing quality control as a check on the use of feb- in federal in the federal funding of science. Um, Newton's Principia was not peer-reviewed. Darwin's The Origin of Species was not peer-reviewed. Uh, the breakthroughs that g- the, that gave rise to the quantum and relativistic revolutions in in physics were largely not peer reviewed. So peer review is a a fairly recent institution. It was developed with the original idea of having peers check the factual accuracy and rigor of experimental methods used by the, the, the scientists submitting the papers it was not meant to enforce a consensus in a given field, especially not an ideologically driven consensus. But unfortunately, that's increasingly the way peer review has functioned. And that has meant that it's kept good ideas out rather than um, keeping bad ideas from getting in. And it it can keep bad ideas from getting in, but it has kept a lot of good ideas from, from consideration.
0: So to be really simplistic here, if uh, I wrote a scientific paper that said two plus two is five, then the peer review is supposed to say, "Wait a second, that's an error," that's and that an calls error. into yeah right and that calls into question the validity of the uh, study and the paper
1: and the scientist judgment, et cetera. Exactly.
0: Um, and but if I um, if I uh, submit a paper that says. Uh, You know, uh, there's a different uh, reason for warming temperatures. The sun is increasing its intensity, and we see that because Mars, and I don't know whether this is true or not, I'm just spouting here, Mars um, uh, uh, ice caps are shrinking. That might be kept out of the peer-reviewed literature because it went against the narrative The uh, the alleged
1: consensus,
0: right. uh, The the consensus that uh, climate change or global warming is being caused by human beings. So one would be a proper use of peer review and the other would be an improper. Would that be an accurate way to put it?
1: That's a good way of making the analytical cut. Now, it's not always hard. It's not always clear as to the difference, whether you're looking at a factual error or a a, a difference in theoretical perspective. Sometimes the You have different. You can have disputes in science about what the facts of the matter are. Sure. So that 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 can blur things a bit. But you know, just to use the climate change debate as an example, you again have some very very prominent scientists: Richard Lindzen, who holds an endowed chair in in uh, atmospheric physics and climate uh, studies at at MIT; Uh, Will Happer at Princeton; Roy Spencer at NASA. Um, these are some very prominent scientists who have raised questions about the anthropogenic man-human-caused global warming hypothesis. And the, the media it completely ignores their voices. There's a website by a scientist who I think operates out of Portland. He's got over 30,000 scientists who have signed a statement of dissent against that dominant narrative, saying we, we are skeptical about anthropogenic global warming. And they have PhDs in relevant fields. So, what kind of a consensus is it that says thirty thousand scientists who disagree don't exist? I mean, that's you know, you 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 have these cases where where um, where ideology is trumping an open discussion,
0: which leads to distrust. Distrust in the, the institution public. of science, right? Yeah, and that that is actually harmful to science. Uh, whereas allowing the papers to be, you know, let's say my Mars hypoth- my Mars illustration. Well, okay, then there could be a paper that would say, "Wait a second, this is a cause for the shrinkage in Mars, or or the Mars isn't really the ice cap isn't really shrinking, and so forth." And that's the role, isn't that the proper role of the scientific journals where peer review generally occurs? So
1: open that up and let the argument take place. Point, counterpoint, argument, counterargument, and it's it, it it's a bit like democracy. It's messy. It takes time, but. It's a lot better than than, uh, an authoritarian science that does not permit um, or brook dissent.
0: And authoritarian science can lead us down very uh, uh, terrible places. It can
1: be used to support authoritarian forms of government.
0: And, and and as this, you said, it's a the Soviet
1: Union. You know, the Soviet Union was famous for its authoritarian scientific pronouncements that were then used to support uh, Soviet ideology.
0: Well, you don't have to go to the Soviet Union. You go to eugenics here in the United States and right, in the UK right, and Canada right. and so forth, where the science was supposedly settled that there was a distinction to be made between the fit and the unfit among humans. And that led to a terrible uh, tragedy of uh, involuntary sterilizations and in Germany uh, during World War II, the Holocaust. Right. We the were medical doing Holocaust, many, uh,
1: anyway. With respect to um, yeah, in, involuntary sterilization and so-called... What's, what's the, the two names of the different types of eugenics? The, uh, positive
0: The um, positive and negative eugenics. Yeah, we
1: were doing positive eugenics in this country up until the, the camps were discovered at the end of World War II. The death camps were discovered. And then, then there was a kind of horror... And and a lot of that stopped here in this country. But th- And this was being done in the name of Darwinian biology as well. It was the evolutionary biologists, many at Ivy League schools, who were promoting the eugenics program in the United States.
0: So this was a and negative eugenics is what led to the sterilizations. Uh, this was to prevent people who were uh, considered unfit from procreating. Uh, and when one challenged that... One was accused of being a religious fanatic and this kind of thing. Right, right. So, I mean, everything old is new again. Uh, like your stem cell debate. Yeah, exactly. It's the same thing. I think another issue that we're beginning to see, very disturbing issue that causes distrust in science, is, a, is the proliferation of fraudulent papers. Uh, just the other day, and we're recording this in early February, the Guardian newspaper, which is a very left-wing newspaper from the U.K., Reported that there are now more than ten thousand retracted research papers annually, uh, and that means something has really gone wrong in science and in the peer review process. It seems to me.
1: Yes, it, it's quite common. There's also been articles uh, about the replication crisis that people will report Explain on. Explain that. Study. Explain what that means. Well, that you you know, in in uh, especially in laboratory science. A, a standard of, of of good method is that the experiment that you performed can be replicated by other researchers. And so many times a dramatic uh, result is reported on the basis of an experiment, and then other people try to do the experiment and they can't replicate the dramatic result. So you and then this is becoming more and more common, and it often is a consequence of fraud. People wanting, to get the result, to get the grant, there's so much pressure: publish or perish, publish or don't get the money. Pressure on scientists that because it's a human enterprise, this kind of thing can happen. So again, you need those checks and balances. Replication, that the, the standard of replication for laboratory work is one of those checks, and um, and 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 uh, so a lot of people have. Uh, there have been a number of articles about that that the, the problem of. Papers that cannot be replicated. That is often the reason that papers are then withdrawn.
0: And, and that—and people are, are beginning to, I think, even lay people are noticing uh, that crisis. There's also, I think, the issue of ethics. But and by the I way, think,
1: Wesley, I have a, a, a colleague who was in a very prestigious lab um, who um, was asked by the supervisor in the lab to attempt a replication of a dramatic result that had been performed by. A young PhD or postdoc, I can't remember, um, and the, the paper had been submitted and accepted at Nature with the imprimatur of the lab director on the paper, and then the, the, the younger person who had done the work uh, left the lab, went back to her home country on, in an unexplained way, which raised suspicion. When the When the experiment that was then replicated, the results could not be replicated, and the lab director had to write Nature, top paper, you know, journal in the world, and withdraw the paper. So, the, I, I, one of one of the scientists who works at Discovery Institute was in that lab and was actually asked to perform the, some of the replication work and and couldn't couldn't do it. So, um, it, we have some firsthand knowledge of how, how that dynamic has played out in some cases, somewhat tragically.
0: I'd like to do a, a full um, program one time uh, on the ethics of science because that's a whole different field but I think people are beginning to worry particularly with biotech and so forth biotechnology, which is uh, I think the most powerful um, uh, technology since the splitting of the atom and perhaps more powerful because you can change any life form any cell with uh, with some of these uh, things like CRISPR that can genetically uh, uh, edit, uh, modify forms. the dna right yeah so so there needs well, there's to that, be there's,
1: there's those sorts of ethical considerations about what we should allow ourselves to do or what experiments we should allow ourselves to uh, conduct but then there's also this really basic ethical things about the importance of telling the truth
0: yes and
1: and some of the the fraudulent things uh also not using power to <laughs> to stifle dissent. I mean that's an ethical issue I think in some way
0: I, I think well. it's a very major ethical issue uh, as well because, as a
1: methodological one right yeah
0: so it and, and that is the, all of these things that we're we're addressing here people may not think of them you know well ABCD but but eventually it just becomes this idea well you know how can I trust anything?
1: Yeah, and we don't want people to get to that point. Right. Science, science is a great enterprise, and it's brought huge benefit to the human race, and we want it to flourish. So the anti-science epithet is uh, is not only uh, unfair; it's 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 really damaging because if you if you call people anti-science who simply want to question an idea, um, using Data they've derived from a scientific experiment or study—that's uh, that, that's doing a disservice to science. Hey, can I can I tell? I, I forgot I was going to tell you a story that illustrates this problem with peer review. That might sure might, go ahead. Yeah, of interest. I thought of it and then it slipped my mind when we got onto another another uh, direction in the conversation. Um, early on in our work on intelligent design, the wrap on our perspective was that. We didn't have any peer-reviewed scientific papers. Uh, The first two books that were published on intelligent design were both peer-reviewed. One was the design inference published by William Dembski at the um, Cambridge University Press. The other was Michael Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box, that was published at a trade press, the free press, but it was also peer-reviewed. But nevertheless, people were saying, well, but there's not been any peer-reviewed papers in a reputable scientific journal, so therefore it can't be considered science. All right. So in 2004, I submitted and after a couple rounds of peer review had accepted for publication a technical paper advancing the theory of intelligent design as the best explanation for the information needed to build new forms of animals. And the paper was published at the Proceedings of the Biological Society of Washington, which was a peer-reviewed journal. Actually, I think the oldest peer-reviewed journal in America, and it's published out of the Smithsonian Institution. The editor of the journal, Richard Sternberg, was a kind of open-minded Darwin skeptic who thought that the debate about intelligent design needed to get out of the newspapers and into the scientific journals. And so he, he, uh, uh, after sending it out for peer review, After I made corrections to a first round of the paper, which satisfied the peer reviewers, published the paper. It was quiet for about a week, and then all hell broke loose. And the Smithsonian, was, as the journal was mailed out to Smithsonian scientists and members, uh, they started getting all kinds of complaints and angry letters, and then there was media attention and Sternberg was immediately censured. He was locked out of his office, he, his keys were taken away, he was transferred to an office next door to the Smithsonian administrators, so they could keep an eye on him. There was a meeting called by the, um, the society that oversaw the publication of the journal, and he, as the editor, was disinvited to that meeting discussing the controversy about the paper because the president of the journal of the society told him that he couldn't guarantee his personal safety, that tempers were running so high that he had allowed a paper discussing intelligent design into their uh, august and prestigious journal.
0: Well, let, let uh, me interrupt you real quick, and then yeah. you can finish the story. It wasn't that he published something that nobody thought was properly framed or written, or or uh, in fact, you said there had been, uh, you made some changes based on criticisms. It's that he did publish something that had actually gone through that process that upset them.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And he, he sent it out to, uh, I had four different peer reviewers representing different fields. It was quite a rigorous process. Um, and it was, um, it was either accepted contingent upon making changes, or it was... Um, it was rejected with the option to make changes to ha- that would satisfy the reviewers. One of the, but it had to go through. I had to get through two rounds to get to get it published. Um, and in any, eventually, actually, um, there were some scientists from the Smithsonian who went to the NIH where Sternberg had a joint appointment, and they tried to get him fired. And it took the intervention of a U.S. senator to save his job at the NIH. I mean, it was. It was really nasty stuff. And he, the, the controversy was written up in the Washington Post. It was in, um, um, he, he was on, went on the O'Reilly Factor. Uh, NPR had something on it. I mean, it was, it was very, very hot at the time. What was interesting, though, to me um, as a philosopher of science was that they were arguing on the one hand, intelligent design isn't science because it hasn't been published in a peer-reviewed journal then the, once it was published in a peer-reviewed journal or an article advancing it was published, then the argument shifted and it became, well, it shouldn't be published because it's not science. So it's not science because it hasn't been published in a peer-reviewed journal. It shouldn't be published in a peer-reviewed journal because it's not science. You had this perfectly circular form of reasoning that was exclusionary, which meant that you never, would, <laughs> it never could be science because uh, it, was, it, it wasn't gonna be allowed. So now it, we're 20 years on from that, and we're over 200 uh, peer-reviewed scientific articles that have been that, that have advanced the theory of intelligent design. And so that that logjam has is, is broken, but it was a very very tough nut to crack initially. And it shows you how peer review can be very very prejudicial and exclusionary.
0: It can be used as a cudgel instead of a way to validate uh, accuracy.
1: Yeah, or, or, or open a debate that needs to happen.
0: Yeah. We're almost out of time. I have so many other questions to ask you, but but one of the last areas that I think is beginning to really infect science uh, are things that are not about science. Uh, I'm thinking of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, that uh, the sciences seem to be falling for this idea that uh, we have to take into account sociological issues in terms of our findings and in terms of who does the science uh, as opposed to pure merit or pure objective the best you can objective truth do you think i'm do you think that's becoming a problem for science
1: well i i suppose it's the dei agenda is affecting pretty much every american institution and um, um it's these words are equivocal you know we're all for equality we're all for inclusion um diversity is a good thing but what's typically meant is that we want a equality of outcome not an equality of opportunity we want um diversity of incidental attributes rather than a diversity of thought um you know so it's um i, I think the the, the, the um o- openness to to a diversity of ideas is good for science. Um, openness to a diversity of people is good provided the people are qualified. And right. so it's, I think merit is, is, uh, I, I think devaluing merit as a standard is affecting every American institution in a deleterious way.
0: I had and a conversation, it does
1: no favors to the people that are allegedly being advanced because of whatever incidental attributes they may possess rather than relevant attributes to the field in which they're going to participate, uh, I, I don't think that does those folks, you know, those groups any favors. Because then when people get jobs, people wonder, well, did you get it because you were an affirmative action hire or because you're really good? And I think, I think, you know, I believe that, uh, you know, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights and talent is widely distributed to all groups. So let's, let's let uh Objective standard of merit uh, 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 evaluate talent, and and eventually the disparities in representation will work themselves out in a way that doesn't damage science, the economy, corporations, in, in universities, etc.
0: Yeah, I had a conversation uh, just last week with a, uh, a very prominent neurosurgeon, uh, head of a medical department at a medical school, uh, a neurosurgical department at a medical school. And he told me that uh, he had been pressured that there are 10% approximately of the uh, residents in neurosurgery are women. And he'd been told to bring it up to 50%. And he said, you know, he was appalled by that. Not that he didn't want women to be neurosurgeons, of course, but that, if you bring them up to 50% because they're women and you're excluding other people who might be better neurosurgeons, eventually neurosurgery itself will be deleteriously impacted because you won't have uh, the same kind of excellence you might have otherwise had. And it seems to me that can also destroy trust in science.
1: I think anything that, that uh, leads to a lessening of standards will do that.
0: Well, I wanted to get into the distinction between science and scientism, but we're out of time. <laughs> okay. So, so let me ask uh, real quickly: what next for Stephen Meyer and the C and the Center for uh, Science and Culture?
1: Well, I'm I have uh, completed uh, three books in a big trilogy: one on the origin of life, one on the origin of animals and the new forms of life, and then one on the origin of the universe and its fine tuning. Uh, the last one being the return of the God hypothesis, and um, uh, I have some other book ideas for the future, but this summer I'm going to be doing some teaching. Uh, we have a, a summer program at a new study center that we're, we're founding uh, in Cambridge, England, and I'm, I'm very excited about that. So we've got a, an all-star lineup of, uh, of scientists and scholars who will be looking at these important issues at the intersection between science and philosophy, science and, and religious belief, and um, and uh, so that's 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 one of the things on my my upcoming schedule
0: and, and and part of that would be hopefully to help restore the trust in science correct
1: restore the trust of science and also restore people's uh, confidence that uh if they have religious belief that that um, science is not the foe or the the enemy of such belief but rather actually as the as the early scientists thought that The scientific enterprise is something that can be pursued for the glory of God. And I quote there a title by the famous historian of science, Rodney Stark, who had a wonderful book at Princeton University Press titled The Glory of God, which was the history of the scientific revolution, where the glory of God, he believed, was the reason that those scientists were doing science in the first place. They wanted to display the order, the design, the rationality of the natural world as a product of the divine mind that brought all things into existence.
0: Well Steve thank you very much and I hope we'll talk again.
1: Thank you. Wonderful
0: discussion. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org/human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.